0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might remember yesterday we were chatting about uh, Lisa Raitt and, of course, her page that she had just launched, which basically uh, says, Stop Kevin Uh, O'Leary. It's pretty much directed at Kevin O'Leary and Kelly Leach and their sort of Trump-style politics. Uh, We finally got a chance to corner Lisa Raitt and... Had an interview with her late yesterday. Here is that interview with Lisa Raitt. Tory leadership candidate Lisa Raitt has launched a website slamming Kevin O'Leary and Kelly Leach, stating that they would destroy the party and keep the party from power for a generation. Joining us now, Conservative MP Lisa Raitt. Hello, Lisa. How are you today?
1: I'm well, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks
0: for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. Why the page attacking your opponents?
1: Well, I ended up deciding to do this because after having gone through elections in 08, 11, and 15, I am having won all three. I know what it takes to win, and I know how you can lose. And I know that when you approach it the way Stephen Harper did during our majority years, that you need a unified and an inclusive party that reaches out to ordinary Canadians and talks to them about their issues, then you're going to be successful. And what I see in both Kevin and Kelly is commentary in the case of Kevin and Kelly policies and her language now it's um seeking to actually alienate people in our country that we need votes from so what I'm saying to conservative members is um, if our goal is to beat Justin Trudeau in 2019 which it should be because that is the ultimate goal of our party because we're concerned about the economy and debt and all of those things associated with this liberal government then we have to be careful about choosing a leader and we want to pick a leader that can actually win and for the reasons that I put out on the website, StopKevinO'Leary.com, I think he comes with baggage that's going to be detrimental to the past. And um, by highlighting how Kelly uh, does seek to divide us as a party, um, she will be a problem as well in terms of us having a unified party going forward.
0: That being said, Trump did win. Are you worried this will backfire and uh, draw more attention towards these candidates?
1: Yeah, it's a totally different country and a totally different electoral system. Uh, for me, what I am focused on is the fact that you need to have 338 candidates around the country that are going to be running on the name and the face of the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and each one of us has to make sure that that person is going to be an uplift to us in our ridings to ensure that we're going to be able to get the votes we need to get elected. Um, it's a very different system. Uh, the only thing that's similar is I think both of them are attempting to, to take parts of of what the president-elect was successful in doing and becoming the president. Um, but I don't think it's going to work here. And that's my other caution. This isn't about about um, whether or not it's good or bad politics. Is I don't think it'll work here to an extent that it will actually overshadow the very real things that Kevin has said about unions and our veterans and our forces. And what Kelly is saying about immigration.
0: After the last election, uh, when the Conservatives lost, they said they were looking for a more likable, softer approach. How much of this is a distraction with all of these extreme views? It's really not the direction the party wants to go in, is it?
1: Well, I, you know, I was part of the discussions and um, the aftermath of losing in 2015 because I was a successful candidate here in the, the GTHA. And, you know, a lot of the areas went liberal, um, and I'm one of the ones that made it out. So I think I know what it takes to win. And what works for me in my community is to be relatable, to be approachable, to be kind. And those are the values that Canadians see in their elected representative, and mine happened to be with the the Conservative Party, and and people believe in the Conservative policies as well. And people want to have fiscal management that's good, and people want to have... To know that their healthcare system is being managed as best possible, and that they've got a party who's looking at making sure we create really good jobs for people in the country, and that we've got a successful track record on. So, distraction or not, I, I don't. Uh, I think what we need to do to win in nineteen is to talk to Canadians about our great policies and present them with a leader that is likable, that's reliable, that'll earn their trust and get their vote, um, and to be a good contrast in terms of an alternative to Justin Trudeau's Liberals.
0: Uh, MP Lisa Wright is with us, of course, Tory leadership candidate. Uh, Lisa, why do we seem to be a world of extremes lately? Either it's alt-left or it's alt-right. Is there not an appetite for the centre anymore? I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: certainly, I've lived all my life in the in the centre-right. Um, you know, you learn that in, in business, and, and I learned it in Cape Breton, for goodness sake, where I came from, where... You may not have had a lot to live on, but you lived within your means, and that's kind of like the basic precept of, of being uh, fiscal conservative, and I firmly believe that, that if you're not looking at your debt, and if you're not looking at your balance, what are you really doing for your kids and your grandkids and the rest of your family? So I um, I would hope that those are the things that people, Canadians, look for when they're voting in a general, and, and I hope our membership, who are the, the most important ones in this leadership race, are thinking along the lines of, of what they were saying a year ago, which is we really need to win. And we know that when we took extreme positions in the past, it it didn't work for us in this country necessarily. And what we should do is go back to what we manage well, which is the economy and talk about job creation and uh, have that balanced approach to immigration, which we did with Jason Kenney and Stephen Harper, and just make sure we get on with the business of making people's lives easier. And um, that's what I offer. And that's the That is the reason why I put out the website because I think people need to understand that behind the bluster there are some real concerns about um, approaches that have been taken and words that Mr. O'Leary has said either about carbon taxes or veterans or, as I said before, union and union members.
0: Obviously, these two candidates are drawing attention to themselves. What do you say to those that are saying you're just trying to get the attention that they are at this point by, by lambasting them?
1: I am absolutely trying to get attention of the membership that if we want to win in 2019 that kelly and kevin aren't going to lead us on that path because of what i view as big downsides in terms of what they have said or what they are going to say and what they are saying and knowing the electorate um from as i said the last 10 years of running in elections uh, in order to get those votes here in the gta in order to get those votes. In Atlantic Canada, and uh, we need to ensure that we're, we're talking about conservative principles and policies, about pragmatic policies that are based upon hard work and self-reliance and um, better government and, and lower taxes. Those are the things that work. And that's what I would say to them. Just think about what we need to do in order to win because that's what our ultimate goal should be
0: hillary clinton pointed out some of the same qualities in her opponent as you pointed out in these people are you worried that you will be painted as part of the establishment that some are trying to get rid of that some are tired of the status quo
1: well you know i think there's a lot that's going to go through the mind of the average conservative voter the average conservative membership holder and they're going to be making the decision as to what leader they want to lead them in the election of 2015. Here's the thing. They know who they're going to be up against. They're going to be up against Justin Trudeau and his Liberal cabinet, and they know um, from the past what kind of campaign they're going to run, and we don't know how bad the economy is going to be at the time, but we need to be able to make sure that we've got somebody who is going to measure up against um, the Liberals. You know, a lot of people at the beginning when we first lost started talking about the fact, well, conservatives were going to be in the darkness for for eight years at least. And I don't agree with that. I think there's a great opportunity to make sure that uh, the liberals don't win in 2019 if we calmly, rationally present our policies. And that's the kind of flavor I bring as a leader. I'm reliable. I'm a mom. I'm, I'm hopefully unlikable. I'm told I'm likable. Um, and, and you know somebody that can earn the trust of the voter again for the conservative brand as opposed to somebody who is going to be very different in terms of tactic and very different in terms of of being um, louder i would say and and far more aggressive and I don't think that's going to measure up well against the liberals and I think Canadians want to know that the conservatives are going to make sure that they manage the economy as best they can and and that's the path that I offer I believe that We offer that path to victory.
0: Uh, Again, not to compare apples to oranges here, as you suggested, but the Trump election, it seems at this point, now that everything's calmed down, was about protest. It was about people who wanted anybody but the status quo. Do you think we have that disenfranchisement feeling here?
1: I don't know. I mean, we're going to, certainly this is going to be an opportunity to see whether that's the case. Um, But I'll tell you something, Scott. I'm not afraid to know the result of that, and I'm much more comfortable knowing that I've had my say about what kind of leader I'd like in uh, in our Conservative Party and the qualities I'm looking for in order to ensure that we beat Justin Trudeau and his team in 2019. And that, um, you know, also sounding the alarm that when you go down the path of union bashing, when you go down the path of alienating new Canadians, um, that is not going to give you victory in a general election. And, I'm happy to find out whether or not our Conservative Party believes that way or if they choose to go in a different direction because maybe somebody else offers something different, and and that's all fine. But for me, um, I don't like having that kind of risk. What I like to know is we got our best chance to beat Justin Trudeau in 2019, and I do believe that it's with somebody like me, center-right, believes in economic principles, pragmatic, conservative.
0: Tory leadership candidate Lisa Raitt has been with us. Lisa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: I appreciate it, Scott. Take care.
0: There you have it. That was recorded uh, earlier on. And, uh, of course, uh, it's interesting because lots of people have thought that uh, if you start to go in this uh, direction and you start to alienate the Kelly Leeches and the... Uh, Kevin O'Leary's of the world that what you'll end up doing is exactly what Hillary Clinton did uh, down south. Uh, Dom tweets the exact same thing. Lisa Raitt sounds like she ripped the fear-mongering chapter out of Hillary's notebook. It's not going to work. Uh, interesting. Uh, I think that uh, that this tweet has a very, very valid point. But again, this is a point at the beginning of the campaign for her in a sense that she has finally decided to break out and, and stand up and get the attention. And this has worked. It's got the attention of people and certainly put her up there with the Kelly Leeches and uh, the Kevin O'Leary's when it comes to... Uh, certainly being recognized and making some noise in this campaign, which has really just been uh, the other two for perhaps not flattering reasons for uh, the Conservative Party. I think what has to happen moving forward now that she has everybody's attention and now that she says, uh, you know, she's identifying herself. She's not really telling us what she's doing. She's just telling us what she's not going to do, uh, which, again, is a good way to get yourself front and center. But then how long can you carry that Uh, So, of course, it doesn't turn out to be the U.S. election where it's somebody just or two people just throwing barbs back and forth uh, at each other. So by doing this, she has certainly made a statement that says that this is not the Conservative Party that she wants to be a part of. This is not the Conservative Party uh, or or what she feels the Conservative Party stands for. She does not feel that this divisiveness is what Canada needs right now or her party needs. Uh, It's about unification. It's not necessarily about driving wedges between certain groups and such. So um, by identifying what she doesn't want to be, I guess in a sense it has uh, put forth the thought of what she does want to be. Uh, at this point, I, I I don't think you can keep doing this throughout the whole campaign. I think you have to then focus on well what are you going to do better than what Kelly leach and what Kevin O'Leary are going to do? But at least with this, at least with this, Uh, statement that she said yesterday and coming out, and it's interesting to, you know, when talking to her, and I've interviewed uh, Lisa Raitt several times, and she seems to be a very down-to-earth, very honest person, and uh, I really get the feeling that, uh, because some have said, well, she's just trying to get her name in the race now, she's just trying to Uh, Get her name front and center and and, and out of the shadow of these other two. And and, and obviously in a campaign, that's what you're trying to do. But on the other hand, I honestly believe that she does not believe that these people are taking the party in the right direction. Uh, Certainly uh, Leach with her view on immigration. And again, it just it seems, you know, it, it seems to go back to that Harper era of. Of less friendliness, and again, you can be friendly and still be firm. I mean, really, Justin Trudeau's not doing much different than what Prime Minister Harper was doing. He's just doing it with a nicer smile on his face, uh, and that does go a long way in politics. It certainly does. Uh, that being said, it uh, at some point during this race, uh, it'll have to get down to policy, and in fact, which each one is planning to do for the country more. And, and over and above for Kelly Leach, the immigration situation, and, of course, for Kevin O'Leary, uh, more than the business side of things, and perhaps more a peek at, at what his social policies are. Uh, those, I'm sure, will come out in the months ahead. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Alvin's on the line. Alvin, what are your thoughts? I understand you uh, have a comment on Lisa Ray.
2: Yeah, I don't know why she's so frightened of fair competition. I mean, uh, do we have a? I don't think there?
0: she's frightened of fair competition. I think she wants. She just wants to take the party in a completely different direction than what the, I guess, uh, extreme right base want to take it.
2: Well, you know, I hear that word extreme right, and I, I you know, do we extreme left, extreme right? We don't even know what the, the gentleman that you're talking about the platform is yet, really. So how do you know who his platform?
0: Well, who, who Larry? Yeah. Well, you don't know anything about him. He hasn't even declared himself a candidate.
2: Right. So I'm just saying, well, why are you, you're frightened him when he's not even registered yet. Right? Well, God. well, he
0: certainly is. You know, I, mean, I think that's just a matter of time. I think he's just toying like with the waters.
2: You. But I'd love to see on your program, what I would really like to see is that, you know, put a line in how many people want to go out and talk politics on your program and get about uh, 20, 25 people or less, whatever the number could be, uh, just draw them from the hat that, that want to be and then talk politics and see what the public wants to see, what they want to hear about. We never hear about this uh, as a. Uh, well, uh, I think, do think, we, I think
0: we do. That's what the vote's for. That's when the public speaks, is when the vote is uh, held.
2: Yeah, but, but that's, that's at the end of the game. I mean, it's like the city of Hamilton when they do their uh, the information session. I don't, <laughs> what you're as- I don't understand what you're asking. I don't
0: understand what you're asking. I don't understand what you're asking.
2: What I'm asking for is that right now there's an opportunity before the candidates are even elected or before the debate even starts right. or at the end of the polling, get a group of people that you want to know what the average people think. Well, well you have the average people on. That's, you know, what, a, that's
0: what we're doing right now by having you on, bud.
2: Yeah, but that's not, I'm, I'm talking about a larger session, a long, uh, larger session with more people that they get on there in a real discussion and an in-depth series that you could have that you you really find out what the public is actually knowing because we're getting even myself coming on this this is only a snippet you know there's lots So what of- would
0: you like to, what would you like to see?
2: I would like to see a, a number of uh they, they call them town halls and the No state. no no
0: no no what would you like to see as a platform? What would you like to see uh, being addressed in this next election?
2: Oh, great. I'm tell you right now. One, I think the, specifically uh, the trades uh, uh, initiative on that bill that came across, it's absolutely detrimental to all the trades. Uh, that, that should be abolished uh, in Ontario. I think that's uh, contrary to the... Um, Do you think that
0: sort of thing resonates with people across the country when they're paying hydro bills and... and I,
2: think, well, uh, important too. I think they should be a part of it all, too.
0: Well, I don't sure. disagree with that. I just don't think it captures the public's attention.
2: Right, because it's not sexy. And you know, but it's not sexy. And then the problem the is, not sexy doesn't really sell. I know how you, how you make it sell is is uh, tie it to what your rates are. That people in this country, uh, you know, you get your experts in one of your fields, but once you get the ex, I never specifically you're talking about hydro, gas utilities in this country. Why don't we have? If you want to talk about a national program. Why aren't we making a petroleum plant somewhere in Canada? So we sell, we make the gas and give it to our country.
0: More refineries. Yeah, there's lots of talk about that. I mean, for the longest time, we were shutting refineries down. Now there's lots of chatter about firing them back up again. Uh, I see your point. Thanks for the call, Melvin. Much appreciated. All right, take care. Uh, phone lines are always open if you want to uh, chat, just like Melvin. 905-645-3221, star on your cell. I mean, this is what we do every day. Uh, and, of course, uh, you don't want to call. Send me a note, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com, Facebook and Twitter as well. All right, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be doing a campaign-style tour to reconnect with Canadians. Has he become disconnected after just one year? Is this truly needed or a waste of money or a good idea to reconnect with the people on a personal basis? Is this maintenance or are there issues? Peter Graff is with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Happy New Year to you, Peter. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, why do you think, first of all, we'll start with this, why do you think Justin Trudeau is doing this?
3: Uh, I think he's doing it for the same reason, you know, all prime ministers have done this in the past. Is uh, It's easy, positive media. So uh, you get beat up whenever the House is sitting. Uh, people are asking uh, tough questions. Uh, even when the House isn't sitting, the media often asks uh, tough questions. But at the beginning of the year, there's that soft spot. Uh, where you can go out and meet people and get uh, really positive uh, photo uh, opportunities with them. You also get a chance to go to the World Economic Forum and make yourself look like a statesman for the media. So uh, I think it's really a really sweet spot for politicians to go and uh, get good press uh, without the the questions really being sharpened up as they are for the rest of the year.
0: And let's be honest, this is what uh, the Prime Minister does best.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no doubt that... Yeah, I mean, I can expect we'll see a bunch of pictures of people who seem more than overjoyed to be some sort of pinhead in the back of a uh, of a selfie, right? Uh, we, we see this nonstop. Uh, that's what the, the press you get. And the parties have become very good at controlling who shows up at these things, so you're not going to get someone coming up to the prime minister and, and saying, well, how come you didn't uh, follow this promise that you made, or why did you betray us on that? And so, yeah, it's really it's easy media uh, for them. And, I mean, he'll go to a forces base. Uh, you know, no one is going to be insubordinate in that kind of situation. Again, he looks good as a you know, leader of the troops. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all image management uh, at this time, but it's a government that probably needs a bit of that because uh, a year and a bit into their mandate, people are beginning to ask, well, where's the change that we asked for? And so uh, parts of his electorate that brought him to power uh, may be less happy with him now than they were a year ago.
0: So do you think this is just maintenance? I mean, his whole uh, campaign was, was was fought on connecting with people. Is this about staying connected, or are there problems on the horizon, do you think?
3: Well, I mean, it's true that all our politicians get disconnected. Uh, I mean, just the demands on their time are such that they don't go and speak to people about their day-to-day lives. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, glad-handing at a few of these events really makes them that more connected in terms of uh, understanding how people are living. But, uh, you know, it's an important moment for our politicians at least to have some contact. And, uh, I mean, we saw with Stephen Harper when he was Prime Minister, he engaged in similar activities, again, for the the media and probably for the sense of trying to get a feeling of of how Canadians are living. I think for Trudeau it's maybe more important because he has a, a significant strategy where, There's the Liberal government and then there's Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government maybe makes decisions that people who voted for it wouldn't always like Uh, but Justin Trudeau can be the smiling guy who still is the promise of change and so I think for the Liberals uh, as Trudeau began to take a few hits particularly around the question of meeting fundraisers uh, sorry meeting uh, people giving money to uh, the Liberal Party or to the Trudeau Foundation who also had interest in decisions the government were making uh, you know he took some real hits about that so to try and make him fly again as some someone who might deliver change or a different kind of government is important to the liberals and so i think they will really be emphasizing uh, that in, in these meetings over the next couple of weeks, and no doubt sending the same photographers who seem to manage to make every background look gorgeous when he, they're taking pictures of
0: them. Uh, we just heard uh, the other day a, a bad jobs report out that says there are increases in Ontario, but unfortunately the vast majority of these are on part, are with part-time jobs. At what point does all of this start to catch up with him? Are we at that point yet?
3: I don't think so. I mean, I think Canadians are used to this lousy economy. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not, uh, at one point we would have been scandalized by these things. Somehow we now believe we can't do better. And, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the gig economy for the young people, and uh, we really don't have confidence that we can create good uh, family sustaining jobs anymore. So I don't think it actually hurts governments that much. I mean, if we had a large uh, rash of unemployment, people might begin to ask questions. But even there, people increasingly have the sense that a lot of these outcomes are out of the hands of politicians. Now, that may not be true, but we seem to have bought the idea that there's this global economy, there's the decisions of private investors. There's not a whole lot that the government can do to, to change that. And so I think our politicians have become... Uh, less susceptible to be hit by bad economic news, and and this news, which is certainly not good news in terms of uh, people who are taking my classes and want to get their lives started when they graduate, is not uh, unexpected news, if you like. It's kind of what we've been seeing for the past 15 or 20
2: years.
0: Will uh, this tour that he's on, will, will that help relations with premiers? I mean, obviously, he campaigned on having great relationships with the premiers and starting those discussions again. And then, of course, we've seen breakdowns with things like health care and such. What does this do to his relationship with the premiers going on tours like this?
3: Uh, I don't think it does a much one way or the other. Uh, I mean, certainly, if he comes into Ontario and begins talking about how he had this great health care deal and that the provinces failed to do their part in agreeing to it, uh, it's not going to help his relationship with Kathleen Wynne, for instance, who's insisting that, that there be a better deal uh, than with the one that's on the table. So it depends a bit on what sort of messages he's putting out. If, it's, uh, if he steers clear of those uh, issues where there's uh, conflict with the premiers, I think uh, the premiers are fine to see it as just politicking. Uh, so I, I think it will be, you know, interesting to see how much of it is a repair job for Trudeau in the sense of trying to make people believe in him again or how much he tries to use it as a way to leverage public opinion on some of these questions to get Ontarians saying, wait a second, Kathleen Wynne, why haven't you accepted this wonderful deal that Justin Trudeau has brought out? You know, if he does that, then it, it leads to more tension with the, with the premiers.
0: Uh, will everyone's tune change after January 20th when Trump is inaugurated?
3: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, an issue around healthcare funding is an issue around healthcare funding. Uh, I don't think there'll be a huge change in tune. I mean, Trudeau and his entourage changed their tune uh, once a vote was held in the States. And it went from thinking they'd have uh, the ability to work with a democratic president uh, to having to work with not just a Republican president, but one that may not be free trade oriented. Uh, And so a lot of our economic strategy uh, might be in danger. So, uh, I think that was a significant change, and it explains why we see some really odd things like Jerry Diaz, the head of uh, Unifor, coming out and saying, I want to work with Trump. I mean, there's a fear in the Canadian manufacturing sector that the tariff walls are going to go up, and that is going to be a big hit uh, for the manufacturing sector.
0: Um, I don't know now where to go to Trump or to uh, to Lisa Wright. Uh, let's continue with, with uh, the Trump situation. Um, we, we've seen all through his campaign and then obviously in the uh, time leaving up leading up to the inauguration uh, he continually tweets and, and sort of gives half stories and doesn't really follow up it's it's it allow people to follow up with questions and such um, do you think this will get to the point and and I've heard some commentary on this already that people will it'll get to the point because now what's happening is he mentioned something about Ford or General Motors or whoever, and stock prices start to, to fall, things start to happen. I mean, he, he's, in a, he's in a position right now where he can't be doing this sort of thing or he shouldn't be doing this sort of thing because it simply affects other things over and above himself. Um, will it get to the point where... Uh, If he keeps tweeting like this, people will just – I I called it the boy that that cried wolf uh, yesterday in the sense that people will just start saying, oh, that's just Donald, and Donald just says whatever he wants to say, and everybody will just start blowing him off. Uh, Do you think there's a chance of that happening soon?
2: Uh, Yeah.
3: I mean, uh, you could call it the boy who called wolf. I mean, I see him as a really uh, classic wrestling heel. Uh, And any wrestling shtick grows old after a while and you have to leave the territory and uh, have to go somewhere else. Uh, I mean, mean part of it, though, that you point to is these tweets have real-world consequences in terms of how corporations do their strategy, in terms of figuring out where they want to invest or whether they see that the government is stable and reliable in terms of being able to make promises and deliver on them. Uh, And so in that case, it can have some real-world material consequences that push people to say, wait a second, uh, yeah, I like Donald, I like having a a president who's forthright or that fights for jobs, but this guy's just full of hot air. Mm -hmm. Or not only is he full of hot air, he's saying things that are hurting my job or Mm -hmm. my kid's opportunity to get a job. And I think it's there that it begins to to wear thin on the one hand and on the other with the Republican Congress where uh, I suspect... uh, we you have you know, people who will be facing election in you know, 21 months from now not necessarily wanting the baggage of some of these tweets uh, if they're running as Republicans. It becomes a, a point of potential vulnerability. And so I think that might be the other point where the Republicans in Congress try to find a way to uh, rein in uh, Trump because he may become an electoral vibe, uh, uh difficulty for them. Trump himself may be able to play that role and succeed in reaching voters, but his words might be effective leverage for... Less charismatic uh, or other kinds of uh, Congress people who have other issues in their races.
0: He seems to be getting, uh, you know, the Fords or the GMs to react. But at what point do they start realizing which way he is going to react, and then just start playing him?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, across, you know, I mean, we can think about that as a corporations. So we can think about that in terms of uh, interstate relationships and diplomacy. Uh, the extent to which he does seem very predictable in uh, a certain kind of narcissism is uh, uh, again it's hard to know how much he recognizes that and has his own counter strategies I mean he did manage to find a way to get elected president of the United States mm-hmm. even if the, the Democrats thought they Adam played so perfectly in those debates in terms of falling into those traps so uh, you know it's maybe not quite that simple but uh, it would seem that you have uh, a president who's very impulsive uh, and who can be manipulated uh, by people who you know think a bit about their moves, uh, a number of moves ahead.
0: Uh, obviously the Trump effect uh, carrying over across the border with the PC candidate uh, Lisa Raitt and Kevin O'Leary who hasn't entered the race as yet but it's certainly threatening to do so. Lisa Raitt comes out, MP Lisa Raitt who's also a candidate comes out yesterday uh, with a website uh, basically poking Kelly Leach and uh, Kevin O'Leary. How do you think this is going to play?
3: Uh, well I think it's her attempt to make herself into a viable candidate. Uh I mean we'll wait and see what the fundraising results are for the race so far, but I think it's been mostly two people. You've got Kelly Leach who will probably be the top fundraiser. Uh you know, which is usually a good indication of the share of the vote you're going to get in these one member, one vote uh campaigns. Uh and you've got uh Maxime Bernier in second place. And I suspect that leaves a lot of people in the conservative establishment looking for some kind of more establishment candidate because on the one hand you have the libertarian uh, in Maxime Bernier, uh, whose free market policies are probably appealing, but may be seen as too extreme and may be seen as too libertarian on social issues. On the other, you've got Kelly Leach, who I think is probably seen as a liability by the mainstream party. So, I mean, much like the Republicans were struggling to find someone to uh, to put up against uh, Trump in the primaries, I think there's a core of the Conservative Party trying to say who can we present as a serious alternative Uh, to Rayet, but who isn't Maxime Bernier, uh, sorry, not to Rayet, to Kelly Leach, who isn't Maxime Bernier, and so Lisa Rayet becomes a likely figure. I I think it may be also explained why we saw some relatively establishment conservatives look to Kevin O'Leary in the hope that, again, they could find some alternative uh, who might be, in a sense, less extreme.
0: (laughs) Uh, obviously, when the Conservatives lost the last election, they promised a more inclusive party, the, a, a more warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, obviously, Kelly Leach has, has taken that in the other direction. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, we really can't be sure at this point because he simply hasn't declared himself a candidate and, and don't know much other than what you know he has released. Uh, does this divide the party as opposed to making it more inclusive? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, Kelly, Lee, or sorry, um, Lisa Reid is saying that uh, all this is going to do is keep us out of power for the next year. All this is going to do is divide the party and divide the nation's um, uh, perception of our party.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways it doesn't help, although uh, I think all political parties probably are served by having relatively open and vigorous leadership uh, contests. Mm-hmm. Because it is the point at which they can debate the positions they take. But, uh, you know, it does become more complicated when you have a candidate whose uh, views are probably tarnishing the party's image more broadly and affecting its electability, because in many ridings in this country, you have you know strong cores of conservative support but it's based on uh, a, if you like a more inclusive sense of canada not one that would be having canadian values tests for newcomers uh... or even ones that would demand uh, that every single visitor right, not just anyone coming in on a visa or anyone uh, applying for you know immigration status but just every single visitor would have to meet with an immigration official i mean these these sorts of things uh, are probably a real electoral uh, difficulty for the conservatives and and become part of the the conservative brand so in that way i think it probably is hard for the conservative party to have candidates who are are really pushing against the borders and i mean similarly having nick valis coming out uh earlier this week and and crowing about having made up news uh again uh for a lot of conservatives uh that's problematic for them because uh in the broader population it seems to be uh a signal that it's a party that actually doesn't care about telling the truth and and that, I mean, people expect politicians to lie. The question is whether uh, Canadians have got to such a point that they actually believe that those lies aren't like half-truths, they're not saying everything you know or just presenting yourself in the best light. Or whether it's got to the point where you just make up whatever you want.
0: Hmm, seems that way. Uh, Peter Graff has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter lately in regard to uh, this the uh, alleged Russian hacking of, uh, of uh, I guess, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And how that has affected the election, uh, Donald Trump said on New Year's that uh, he knew something that we didn't know and that he wasn't really willing to uh, uh, to confirm or certainly uh, uh, take the evidence given by organizations like the CIA or the FBI that in fact the Russians were behind hacking uh, into the United States during the election campaign. Uh, and said that he ha- he, 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 knew other inf- he he knew other information, which was supposed to come out this week. Obviously, there's been a confidential report that has been released to uh, the people that are in the know. We're supposed to find out more about that, I understand, next week. Uh, however, anonymous sources are reporting that, uh, in fact, the CIA has identified Russian officials who fed material, hacked from the Democratic National Committee and party uh, leaders to WikiLeaks, at the direction of Russian President Vladimir Putin through third parties. Uh, And you know, we were even... uh Uh, hearing stories from uh, Julian Assange uh, with WikiLeaks saying well it didn't come from Russia uh, but he didn't rule out that it didn't come from a party who gave it to Russia or sorry it came from Russia and then given to a third party and then of course passed along. Uh, To try to clarify all of this David Hyde is with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates and he is with us now. Hello David how are you today?
4: Very good Scott how are you doing?
0: Great thank you for taking the time to join us Happy New Year we appreciate you uh, helping us out again Uh, Anonymous sources are saying that the CIA has ID'd officials uh, in Russia who were responsible for this attack and and linked it all to uh, Putin and such. Uh, Is this official now? Can can we accept this? Or do we have to wait until something is released next week?
4: Well, I think, Scott, what we're going to see um, initially is the release, I believe sometime this afternoon, of a declassified or unclassified version of what information can be shared with the public, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of the U.S. um, audience mainly. And that information is going to be, from what I'm understanding, there's not a smoking gun here, Scott, right? So there's not, you know, definitive evidence that is, you know, uncontrovertible, if you will. So Mm -hmm. so there's a level of inference. There's a number of different um, evidentiary um, kind of pieces that are being pulled together that has made the intelligence community and the investigative agencies in the U.S. very confident that the Russians were, A, behind the hacks, they, they, whether they, their actual officials were, or the GRU, the Russian intelligence people, actually perpetrated it, whether they used third parties, the various channels where the information was passed across to get to WikiLeaks. This is what the American government believes, the intelligence agencies believe. and they, But they don't have definitive evidence they appear to have a range of different types of evidence so, you know some of which ties into some intercepted signals intelligence and other communications between russian officials and others that they knew about that the hacks had taken place that they had a foreknowledge of it that they celebrated um you know very uh you know, kind of heavily when Trump won the election, they kind of uh, made statements along the lines of, yes, you know, we were successful, you know, we did it to these kind of things. So when you start to piece all of it together, as now the intelligence agencies have, they've come with a what they call a strong level of belief and confidence that this is what happened. But you know, Scott, you know, we've been down this road before. And this is where I think some of your listeners will. Rightly have a degree of skepticism. Mm-hmm. We ha- we you know we've seen things like the Iraq War. We've seen things like you know the you know the intelligence that was brought forward with the, with the famous weapons of mass destruction yep. that apparently came from the intelligence community, which was actually incorrect. We've seen things like the Edward Snowden leaks. That while people may be on one side of the fence on that, there's no question that the government was dabbling in things they shouldn't have, and they and were and were gathering information from questionable sources that crossed kind of legal lines. So when you look at this all in the light of Day Scott, I think that there's you know um, reason to believe that the Russians certainly had a lot to gain from dabbling here. They have been known to dabble before in foreign elections, including in the U.S. But they've never taken steps this far. They've never really singled out one particular party to really go against and really support, you know, another candidate like a Trump. And I I think my my own view here, Scott, my own sense of this is that I think the Russians got really lucky. I think they were doing their usual thing, Mm -hmm. their usual trolling, their usual fanning of the flames, their usual activity. And I think they found... Vulnerabilities in some areas uh, of democratic, mainly um, apparatus that they could exploit, and I think that as they saw that their efforts might be more worthwhile here, that Trump was someone that might be more amenable to r- the Russian view of the world, there might be able to be a new, um, you know, set of negotiations, not with the old American guard and the establishment, but with someone new that might suit the Russians' geopolitical desires more closely, I think that they invested more. I think they pushed harder. I think they did more things that would enable them to, you know, push the uh, the, the election in a certain direction. That's my sense of it, Scott, is that they got a little bit lucky, and then they piled on to try to, you know, move this in a certain direction. I don't think that anybody can say with certainty exactly what the Russians did that it was only them uh, that was doing all of the hacking, let's say, and that they are the ones that masterminded this whole kind of move towards, um, you know, Trump uh, and kind of putting their finger on the scales of the election, Scott.
0: Uh, does Donald Trump know something that we uh, or the government doesn't know? He talked at New Year's Eve that, uh, you know, he had reason to believe there were others involved and that uh, he knew something that was coming out this week. What was that all about?
4: Well, look, Trump is, if he's nothing else, he's absolutely a master of communicating and knowing how to amplify his message via various media channels. Although he says the mainstream media is against him, and you probably could argue that in some respects it is, um, he's, he's found a way to kind of channel that through to the Every man and every woman in America, the kind of, you know, the kind of middle of society where he's able to channel a message through that that is believed. And I think the reality here, Scott, is that Trump, um, uh, you know, like I said, he's able to manipulate this, this media. And, and what he's protecting here, Scott, this is critical that I think your listeners need to, need to kind of keep in mind here. Trump is protecting his win. He, the last thing that this man wants, particularly if one believes there's kind of egotistical claims, and I think it's clear that he has, he's got, you know, he's got a big personality here.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, he doesn't want it to show that he didn't win the election rightfully. Like it wasn't him, it wasn't his message, it wasn't the new dawn that he's going to bring to America and bring to he mm-hmm. hopes extending out into the rest of the world to a certain respect, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, respect. But that this was always rigged. Uh, for him. He's the one that argued it was rigged against
3: him. Yeah, yeah.
4: Now the suggestion is the Russians kind of came in, maybe Trump knew about it, maybe he didn't, but the Russians won. Without the Russians, Trump wouldn't have got anywhere near to the White House. He's fighting against that. So he's saying certain things that he may have had certain knowledge. He's not, not want, doesn't want to admit that it was the Russian hacking that had a big impact on the election he has a very strategic reason for pushing back on that narrative, when I believe the reality is, I think the Russians did have a degree of, um, you know, interference here. Um, It's convenient for the current presidency, the current political democratic, democratic machinery in Washington, to blame the Russians maybe a little bit more than they ought to be. But it's also ever so convenient for Trump to completely take that narrative away and say, no, I I have reason to believe there are other things at play here. So I think that the discerning among your listeners will probably realize, as I I believe I do, that likely the truth is somewhere in the middle. Hmm. There was a level of interference from the Russians. I think Trump is trumping up a little bit his kind of anti-message against that. And the reality here, as we get information being fed out today and in the next few weeks, I think we're going to find the truth is somewhere in the middle, Scott.
0: How will this play out from his perspective, though? Because as you said, in, in the next couple of weeks, I guess we will find out more information on all of this. How does he spin it in his favor? If it turns out that everything the CIA and the FBI have been alluding to, well, it looks like that's the case.
4: Well, and this is going to be, um, again, another challenge for him to try and walk that tightrope. He obviously, what, what, what he can't do, and you've already heard yesterday some of his tweets and, and statements about um, that he's not anti-intelligence, and he's kind of, again, bashing the mainstream media for um, portraying him as being someone that's against, uh, you know, the intelligence community and doesn't buy the intelligence. Um, he, he needs to be careful because the intelligence apparatus in the U.S. is exceptionally powerful and is a very powerful tool that he can use but that also could go against him ultimately in in, in terms of him achieving his objective. So I think what you're going to see is a slight tempering of his narrative. I think he is ultimately and his team are going to accept that the Russians were involved to a degree. My belief, Scott, is that they're going to point to the reports that have already come out and will come out more today to say, there is no smoking gun here there is no definitive evidence to show that vladimir putin orchestrated this with an order from on high uh, from you know on the russian side there is no definitive proof that it's the russians that handed the information to wikileaks however there is some evidence to suggest that the Russians were, you know, playing games, they were doing some uh, internet trolling, you call it hacking, you could call it the range of things that they normally do to be a disruptor in electoral processes overseas when it benefits them to kind of be a disruptor, which it does in US elections. They've done this for many, many elections, Scott, as you know. So, I think that's what they're going to do here. Trump's team is going to try and chart that middle ground. Look, we're not against the intelligence community. We know they do a hard job. But look, the intelligence says themselves, this is not definitive. We believe that the Russians may have had a bit of jiggery-pokery here. But at the end of the day, we don't think that they swung the election. We don't think that they are the only negative actor uh, that's out there. Trump's already talking about China and the things that China's done against American government databases. How does that data?
0: change the discussion, though, David, if you say, well, it wasn't Russia, it was China? Well, who cares? It's still people breaking in. What, 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 what difference does it make if it's China or Russia or North Korea, for that matter?
4: Well, it, on the one hand, Scott, it makes no difference, but it makes a difference to Trump's narrative. And Trump mm. is a man of narrative. Trump is living. This is the first time we've seen this which is in, in the kind of modern era where somebody is essentially channeling their, their opinions and views through social media by attacking the mainstream media and trying to reach the general population or a majority of the American public with messaging that counters the mainstream messaging, i.e. what the current president and government are saying, what the intelligence community is saying what the mainstream media are channeling with respect to, you know, state officials have said this and the government says that, there's a very, very healthy disbelief and uncertainty amongst the American public after having been misled in the past. And Trump's channeling that. This guy's got an absolutely amazing read Mm -hmm. on kind of the, 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 the kind of sense of where the public is with how they consume information. Because don't forget here, Scott, no one thought Trump was going to win because nobody was looking at the, the, real, the real mood of the every man and every woman on the street. They were looking through the traditional mainstream media and mainstream polling eyes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that voted for Trump, a lot of the people that are listening to Trump's narrative, are not political actors. They're not, you know, they're first-time voters. They have recently become activated largely by social media. So this is what we're seeing, a wholesale shift in the way that the American public and beyond that are consuming information about politics, are having their opinions driven by narratives. And my belief is that Trump has become a master of how to channel that narrative to go against certain people at certain times, then to flip a little bit and, and move a little bit and be very nimble and flexible. But at the end of the day, he is determined to win, and he's determined to channel the narrative in the direction that suits his purposes.
0: It's funny how he alludes to everybody that he's not being represented when there's no other person on the planet that is currently getting more attention than Donald Trump.
4: Yeah. No, I mean, mm. like I said, he, he has become an absolute master yeah. at messaging and manipulation to a degree of media and message, and even when you think—I mean, we all watched this Scott during the election. When you think the guy is down and out, so he rears up again with <laughs> another innovative way of spinning it around, or showing it in a different way, or, or or attaching himself to a different cause or reason that actually makes people pause and say, "Well, you know, maybe he's right. Like, you know, maybe maybe what he's saying is right. Let's let's give the guy a chance." And that's what we're seeing unfold here. Um, like I said, it's very unprecedented. But I think that the word of I think that he 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 does need to be a little bit careful um, with the on on the side of the intelligence community, they do do a lot Scott of good things. There's no question that without the intelligence communities in the respective kind of western nations particularly, um there's a lot of good things that wouldn't have happened interceptions of terrorism plots you know, getting information on things that protect the Mm. interests of the various countries involved. So while I think uh, Trump has every right to be skeptical and to kind of question and look for evidence, I think he I, I believe he will be quite careful about not just wholesale rejecting the intelligence community and be, and kind of besmirching them in the eyes of the public because I do believe that ultimately that could become difficult for him uh,
0: when uh, there was chatter yesterday in regard to uh, uh, this report, uh, they talked about fake news and how that and specifically used the term fake news. How does that relate to all of
4: this well. That's, again, the the other claim against the Russians here is that in addition to doing the normal things they do and the hacking and other such things like this, that they actually had been disseminating, um, you know, fake news and, and, and kind of manipulating media sources and stories, too. And I believe there's, again, a degree of evidence to suggest that some of the fake news and some of the kind of manipulative tools that we use to sway public opinion through the election, particularly online, were either financed by, or supported by, or somehow had a connection back to to Russian elements. But Scott, the reality is that as you look at this this fairly new kind of fake news phenomenon, um, there's no question that that does have a role to play, in my view, in the way that people consume politics. I mean, the, the, especially in the U.S., so many of the the folks that are consuming news. You know, get all of their news from from certain types of sources. If you're a, if you lean left, it's it's very progressive media sources. If it's very right, it's very conservative media sources. And the danger of that is that be, because we live in an age of the internet, where in most cases everything you do can appear on the radar screen of groups like Google, um, you know, Amazon, Yahoo, the different kind, types of groups here that that kind of can channel things towards you that they know that you're going to like. If you couple that reality, Scott, with the rise of fake news, what you now have is a is a gullible, vulnerable, kind of myopic to a certain degree elements of the of the public that are sitting ducks to be, to be targeted with this fake news that only fans the flames of their fairly extreme or fairly Kind of unilateral views anyway. So that definitely muddies the waters, you know, and, and it can sway public opinion. There is evidence to suggest, Scott, that the Russians were, had a hand in um, pushing and promulgating some of the fake news that was in and around the U.S. election.
0: Uh, we've only got about a minute left. Uh, last question here, David. Uh, there seems to be more questions than answers. He seems to create more skepticism, uh, more conspiracy theories, more more questions than answers. Uh, how does that hurt our credibility, our security? How, how do I mean? How does that play on a world stage?
4: Well, ultimately, Scott, I think it I think it plays fairly poorly because, on the one hand, the public needs to have a degree of skepticism and not just obviously accept what every governmental agency, be it a city, be it a province, be it a, a nation-state. I mean, we're not, we're not gullible. We're not just going to accept every political line that we're fed, right? But on the same time, uh, you do need to have a degree of confidence and, and entrustment in government. And it seems
0: like we have more confidence in our enemies than we do our leaders now.
4: And that's what I'm saying. And, and, and the danger of what Trump's doing is that it's a disruptive strategy where... People start to doubt everybody. You know, you think back to the McCarthy era and others. So I'm, I'm not saying this is a, a parallel, right. but there are similar feelings and connotations to it, where members of the public and, and your everyday folk start to feel as though they can't trust the government. And, and where does that lead to, Scott? There may be a bit of a grain of truth to it. There's nothing wrong with the degree of of, of healthy skepticism. But when it starts to undermine your confidence in other aspects of government, that you you don't believe anything, you don't trust the police, you don't trust dealings with the government on other matters that that might um, be involved in your life, now we get to a stage where we have um, the ingredients for rejection of government, for mass protests and upheaval. And, and things that can become very damaging. So I think that Trump's playing, to a certain degree, a little bit, Scott, with fire. I think that he's brought some very refreshing aspects to the discourse. But I think he needs to be careful. I don't think he really understands how powerful his message is right now. And if it's put to good, I think it can do a lot of good. If it's put to things that disrupt and things that cause everyone to be uncertain and even, even fuels... Uh, negative feelings and kind of pits people against each other, I think that we could be looking at some exceptionally dangerous times ahead if that's the direction this really swings and continues, Scott.
0: David Hyde has been with his security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. Great discussion. Thanks for the time, David. Always appreciated.
4: My pleasure, Scott. All the best. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on
0: AM 900 CHML.